Welcome to the Center for Domestic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Gian Nieto teaches at Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California, giving a talk entitled, Aristotle's Identification of Substance and Action in God as Subsisting Goodness. And without further ado, our podcast. So I'm talking about the statement in Aristotle's uh, Metaphysics 12.6. Uh, there must, uh, Ross translates it, there must then be a principle whose very essence is actuality. <coughs> Here, uh, Aristotle's obviously identifying substance and actuality in God. I'm claiming it's the foundation for all the resolution that happens later. Maybe even more important, a re- it's an identification that allows him to use the Platonic formula, the good itself according to itself of God, while at the same time distinguishing his view of separate substances from the Platonic view. Um, but I interpret the, the uh, position differently from uh, at least the, the two interpretations that I know of. Um, those interpretations uh, are centered, uh, if you will, uh, uh, there are a lot of people on, on, in each of two clusters. I think St. Thomas takes one of those positions, St. Albert takes the other. Um, I think they come to the, they think Aristotle is saying the same things I think he's saying there later in the work, but they don't see, they don't claim that at that spot he's actually uh, identifying God's substance with uh, perfect actuality under the ratio of perfect actuality and therefore with life. And I think that's the the critical uh, move that Aristotle's making right at that spot. And uh, again, they get that out of it later on. They can get that out of what they think he's saying there, but they don't think that that's in fact the move that he's making. Uh, So let me read the passage and then I'll discuss uh, their views and how mine differ from theirs. So after arguing the world cannot exist unless some immobile substance exists and showing that such a substance must not only have the power to move but must actually move things, Aristotle says, further, even if it will move but its substance is a power, this will not be enough for there will not be an eternal movement for what is in potency is able not to be. So there must be such a principle whose substance is its actuality. I translate the Greek energia with actuality here, though I prefer activity. Uh, That's not particularly important right now. So let me elaborate very briefly on the distinction of my reading from each of the other two. While St. Thomas does not explicitly use the language of essence and existence in his comments, I think it is clear that he is considering a denial of the distinction between potency and act according to the category of substance. In his words, Aristotle shows further that for the everlastingness of movement, it must be that there's not only an everlasting substance moving and acting, but also that its substance is act. So he says that it is not sufficient for the everlastingness of movement if an everlasting substance should act, but still according to its substance it is in potency. Just as if we put the first principles to be fire or water according to the position of the ancient naturalists. His suggestion that corruptible elements such as fire and water exemplify a first principle in which substance and actuality are distinct makes it all but certain that he sees Aristotle to deny an essence with a potency both to be and not to be, or or with a potency merely to be. 
I think St. Thomas' argument is evidently correct. Uh, further, I think that the truth he attends here is, to here is implicit in the one on Aristotle's mind. Uh, but I do not think Aristotle begins here from within the categories as if he is identifying two things that we grasp through the one category of substance. That is, as, as we grasp the actual existence of a substance through its essence. Rather, I understand Aristotle to approach the determination of the first being from the two divisions of real being that he made in the fifth book, the division into categories and the division into potency and act. He examines substance as it is first in the division of the categories in the seventh and eighth book. There, in Metaphysics 7.6, he considers the ability of the name to express substances that have no substance or nature prior to them. He examines potency and act in the ninth book. There he determines that energeia, uh, action or actuality, taken as perfect activity, is first in the order of potency and act. His examples, as well as his argument, makes clear that such activity is life. I understand Aristotle is claiming against the Platonists that he has actually arrived at the first being insofar as these two names, substance and actuality, express the first being as subsisting life. St. Albert sees the denial closer to my own. He proposes a denial of a power to move distinct from the very act of moving the first mobile. He says quite clearly, now the first mover is a mover through his own essence and movement is his act, just as to illuminate is the act of light. Now I think what St. Albert says correctly describes Aristotle's understanding of the first being as a cause of the world's movement. Uh, we cannot say God is a first mover without attention to his actuality in this way. Still, the notion of God's act of moving the world conceives his actuality at work in the mobile. Uh, though God's actuality does not have any relation to another, it does terminate the mobile's relation to it. But I think Aristotle proposes a conception immediately prior to this. St. Albert describes the actuality in question through an extrinsic denomination from moving, actus movendi. He names God's actuality through the movement or action that depends upon it. Aristotle, however, proposes actuality here as it names the substance of the first principle. So far as I can see, the denial of potency in Aristotle's formula removes any notion of order to another. Uh, God's substance is not a being related to another, as happens even to other beings separated from matter. Rather, the actuality through which God moves the world is his substance without mediation of the order or relation involved in potency and power. And this is just how Aristotle looks back to this text in the following chapter, as if he had identified God with activity as belonging to him absolutely. Let me restate my reading of the claim. Uh, the claim, there must then be a principle whose substance is actuality. I understand Aristotle to speak immediately, though confusedly, of actuality in the most perfect sense of the word, in the sense according to which actuality or action names life, uh, life, contemplation, and happiness. In Metaphysics 9.6, Aristotle shows that the name, uh, Aristotle implies that the name energeia or actuality belongs to such an actuality, that the name belongs to that kind of actuality, even before it belongs to movement. Uh, after such an ordering of the name, only this sense of the name actuality can belong to the first principle of all movement, uh, 
Further, identification with this sense of the name is the foundation for bringing the first principle under the name good. I guess no need to say that is Paul. So I now intend to defend the reading by looking at the ninth book of the metaphysics and then the twelfth. In the paper, in the paper, which I'm not now reading, I discuss three aspects of Metaphysics 9. The first sense of actuality, the actuality ascribed to the heavenly bodies, and Aristotle's criticism of the Platonic notion of ideas there. Uh, I'll offer a, a mere summary of the first two, and then I'll pick up on the third. Among actualities, some stand to potency or power as movement does. Some of these come to a stop when they reach some limit, which exists outside the actuality. That's when they come to a stop. These actualities, such as walking or slimming, I think he knew I'd read this one day and never come to this, that slimness that's supposed to end slimming. Uh, so these actualities, such as walking or slimming, properly bear the name movement. Other second actualities have no limit because the end and good exists within them. He offers several examples, seeing, being prudent, thinking, living well, and being happy. These need not cease. As such, they are perfect actualities, and they bear the name actuality or activity in its distinction from that of movement. So both are called movement, both are called actuality, but at this point he's saying they really deserve separate names. Aristotle must be using this sense of actuality in Metaphysics 12.6. A, because this is the first and most proper sense. Uh, B, such a sense is proportioned to the first being. Uh, C, this sense is prior to movement as the substance of the first mover must be. Uh, the fact that all such actualities are some form of life confirms this. Again, distinguishing this sense was the purpose of Book 9, just as clarifying the sense of substance that belongs to the first beings was the purpose of Book 7. These two senses must be at work in the text under examination, uh, since they had working on separate beings as their purpose, uh, especially insofar as their use together excludes the deficiency in the sense of these words as they belong to sensible beings, uh, though I'm not entering into that question here. The second aspect of Metaphysics 9 that I examine is the actuality ascribed to the heavenly bodies. After discussing the priority of actuality to potency and proposing the declaration that substance and species is actuality, a statement remarkably like the formula in 12.6, in uh, after doing those things, Aristotle distinguishes incorruptible bodies from corruptible ones. He denies that, the mat that matter exists in the substance of incorruptible bodies such that they have a potency in their substance as corruptible bodies do. Uh, such bodies have species more actual uh, than corruptible bodies. As their substance is prior to the substance of corruptible beings, the superiority of the species of the heavenly bodies manifests both the priority of act to potency and the principle that substance as species is actuality. Still, their being admits of matter and potency as evidenced by their movement. The only solution is that somewhere beyond the sensible world, some substance or substances bear the notion of actuality in a manner more perfect than the heavenly bodies. My last concern with Metaphysics 9 is the critique of Platonism occurring there. After proposing a sensible world composed of corruptible bodies moved by incorruptible bodies that have potency to locomotion, Aristotle points out a deficiency in the notion of Platonic ideas. I think it clear from the context 
but here he denies that such beings are actual enough to stand as the first causes in the sensible world. The deficiency he points to in such ideas concerns their actuality. In my reading, Aristotle proposes that the account of such separate ideas does not describe them as beings more actual than the heavenly bodies. He states the difficulty as follows. So if there are some natures and substances such as, say, those who in their arguments, logoi, propose the ideas, they would be something much more knowledgeable than knowledge itself and more mobile than movement itself. For these, these the substances, uh, are more actualities, while those, the ideas, are powers for these. Clearly, Aristotle is claiming that the substances really sought by those who argue that ideal species exist must be more actual than the name idea expresses. Uh, Bonnets points out, these pertain to the genus of potency, but eternal substances are free from potency. St. Thomas likewise points to the potency in knowledge as Aristotle's concern, and he has just described them as potencies. While I think this is true, I believe Aristotle has the actuality of, of knowledge and movement principally in mind. Knowledge and the known are one and the same in act, though they may differ in potency. This is true even of the habit of knowledge. It is knowledge precisely insofar as the actuality of a thing known. Further, Aristotle is simply speaking in the physics that the genus of movement is act. But here he intends to direct our thoughts to a, an actuality superior to either of these, one free from potency. His criticism proposes that even movement as a subsistent idea is not actual enough. Uh, something, you might have the uh, self-moving, the self-mover as a soul in mind here too, uh, it's a bit on my mind. Uh, something more mobile than movement must be something yet more actual. I think it clear that he says this in light of the priority of perfect actuality to imperfect actuality in Metaphysics 9.6. Some perfect actuality must be prior to the movement of the heavenly bodies rather than the idea of movement, uh, at least the idea of movement as such. The example of knowledge reveals more as I see it. Aristotle ch charges the theory of ideas with proposing that the first beings share in life and perfect actuality only as objects. Uh, when I first, when I first, uh, uh, read uh, uh, the Plato, I, I started thinking that, that those ideas really were, th were, were uh, intelligences. And I realized later, he's not, he's not saying that. He's really, he, maybe he thinks it, but if so, he, he's never actually asserting that. Eh? So I'm claiming uh, uh, Aristotle's difficulty here is that these only pertain to life and perfect actuality as objects. Um, I think there's stuff in the third book that, that makes that clearer, uh, third book of metaphysics. For this reason, uh, they, the, its proponents of that doctrine have described the highest knowledge as a first actuality in which a second actuality terminates. Movement also terminates in species in first act. But the first act of knowledge is principle of a second actuality, contemplation and life, uh, that remains in and perfects the very species that constitutes such a principle. The Platonic theory does not conceive separate ideas precisely as they are alive and enjoy the perfect actuality of contemplation. I think that's the, the principal criticism there. I think in the end that's Aristotle's principal criticism of the whole doctrine. So Aristotle describes an actuality superior to these ideas as something much more knowledgeable than knowledge itself and more mobile than mo movement itself. 
The phrase more knowledgeable than knowledge itself implies something more actual than the habit of knowledge in the order of knowing. This can only be the contemplation that arises as actualization of the habit. Further, as we experience in ourselves, contemplation is an actuality able to cause movement. Incontinence proves that the mere habit of knowledge does not cause movement. Uh, as a whole, having shown that perfect actuality is life, and in fact, I think the inability to solve incontinence in Plato is a sign that he didn't see that. Uh -uh. So as a whole, having shown that perfect actuality is life, Aristotle charges the Platonists with conceiving first beings without ascribing perfect actuality and life to them. I turn now to Metaphysics 12. Most of my remarks concern the sixth chapter, though I will make some comments about the remaining chapters. Aristotle immediately proposes to establish the existence of an immobile substance on the assumption that two natural substances exist. I see this as returning to the division of sensible being in Metaphysics 9.8 in order to go beyond the resolution of corruptible to incorruptible bodies. His argument is something like St. Thomas's third way. Uh, he makes an hypothetical statement that follows from the fact that substances are the first of beings. If all substances are corruptible, all things are corruptible. He denies the consequence. Not all things are corruptible because movement and time are not corruptible. This clearly proves the existence of some incorruptible substance. Okay, I'm now gonna say something I meant to say just before this. So I hope doesn't interrupt that. Uh, let me turn from my concern with Aristotle's formulation of the argument for a moment to discuss its force in face of the fact uh, that incorruptible bodies do not exist. Uh, so far as we know, if you need to hold that. Uh, in principle, the argument does not demand some real incorruptible body. That's my claim. The incorruptibility of a species will suffice. In fact, all that is necessary for this argument is some nature apt to exist forever. A real aptitude to incorruptibility, such as that found in any living species, of itself demands some principle that is not merely corruptible. This follows something proved in the last chapter of Metaphysics 10. There Aristotle shows that the corruptible and incorruptible differ as real or metaphysical genera, that is, as subject genera. So they each need their own principles. Incorruptible beings must have incorruptible principles. And corruptible beings, insofar as they are corruptible, must have corruptible principles. But corruptible beings, insofar as they are incorruptible, must have incorruptible principles. I return to Aristotle's formulation of the argument. He now turns his attention to the mover whose substance is capable of explaining incorruptible movement. He uses the phrase, something apt to make, sorry, something apt to move or something apt to make. He can say those in two words. Much nicer. These names, mover and maker, uh, name some incorruptible substance as it is a principle of incorruptible movement and perhaps of the eternal generation of living beings that depends on this movement. Uh, man and the sun generate man. Uh, he, he, uh, there's a big interlude on act and potency that I think keeps people from seeing that he, he turns to generation and corruption in that argument. Uh, and that's unfortunate that you tend to stop there, but he goes on. I emphasize the fact that neither name, uh, that is mover or maker, is equivalent to the English word agent. 
In Greek, neither name expresses the notion of actuality through its etymology. I think in, in English, I think in Latin, uh, we, we tend to focus on the notion of actuality and agency, and that's not in Aristotle. He, he's, he connects movement, he can, he's always comparing in, uh, imminent operation and activity with movement, not with, not with agency itself. Uh, more with categorical passion than categorical action. Hence, Aristotle immediately turns to a concern with the actuality of this agent. This concern gives rise to the reading of the principle stated by Bonitz and St. Albert. Uh, sorry, I didn't mention he agrees with it. Bonitz agrees with St. Albert. He reads in the same way. Uh, who understand the actuality identified with substance in the first principle to be the act of moving, actus movendi, taken as it terminates the mobile's dependence upon its mover. I think their reading fits the first of two very distinct parts of this argument, but not the second. In the first part, Aristotle argues that such a mover and maker must be in act or at work. Uh, in the second part, he argues that there must be some mover and maker that is not a power to act. In fact, these two arguments involve four distinct steps, though Aristotle does not state them in this order. First, one must posit the existence of, a mo of the mover and maker. Second, one must see such substances, not merely as bearing the notion of species and nature, but also as apt to move and make things. Uh, they must have power. Third, these beings must not only have the power to move, they must actually move. These steps are part of the first argument that the mover moving the eternal movement must be a mover in act. At this point, however, Aristotle has only arrived at some mover that needs some cause, at least accidental, of its power to move proceeding into the actuality of movement, even if this occurs in a manner prior to time. The second argument contains the fourth and final step that in this genus there must be a uh, subject genus, that in this uh, genus there must be a principle whose substance is actuality. This step denies, at least in one being of this order, that such a substance is a power apt to act through another's actuality or by chance. One must hold that there exists a principle whose actuality and operation is its very substance. I'll state further that these four steps correspond to four notions proper to the subject genus of immobile beings in my judgment. The first three concepts or categories, substance, power, and action, belong to immobile substances other than the first. The identification or unity of substance and activity stands as a quasi-definition of the first. I'll now show how Aristotle addresses each of these four steps. Now the first of these steps is more or less implicit in what he writes. Uh, after pointing out that movement and time are eternal, Ar Aristotle speaks of something apt to move and something apt to make. He then proposes that such a mover or maker must be at work or acting. But he takes time to distinguish his conception from the Platonic understanding discussed in Metaphysics 7. There he concluded his logical examination of the Platonic species with the claim that those saying the species exist in a way speak rightly, separating them, if at least they're substance. When he now says, there will be no profit, even if we make substances eternal, as do those who propose the species, he makes clear that the eternal existence of such a substance is a necessary but insufficient condition for the first being or beings. This is only a first step 
in conceiving the beings of such substances as all his criticism of the platonic conception of separate substances in the metaphysics implies. Um, and and I, I think that's why he never leaves it as well, by, by the way. I think he's constantly critiquing it, not because he wants to rag on it, but because he thinks there's a beginning here uh, that he can't let go of. Uh, as he says, otherwise there's no order in the world. He sees that Plato saw that. But his rejection of the Platonic species makes the second step clear, that such beings must bear the notion of power. This passage reads in full, there will be no profit, even if we make substances eternal, as do those who propose the species, if there will not be in them any principle able to change another. Uh, that this is a distinct conception of an immobile cause of movement is clear from his description of such a being as what has power. Uh, I should I should say uh, um, I, I'm hesitating recently to ascribe immobility itself until he proves that it will have matter later on. But uh, I'll leave that out of this for now. The third step is to see these eternal substances as actually moving the sensible world. If such substances have a power but do not now possess the work or exercise of that power, they will not move anything. So Aristotle says, for what has power is able not to be acting. This proves what he said in the first line of this section, but if there is something able to move or able to make, but one not acting in ergun, uh, there will not be movement. In this step, he introduces the notion of energeia actuality distinctly. It will be useful to note some things about the concept. Uh, Aristotle introduces an actuality in the mover beyond its power as a condition of its actually moving anything. In bodies, movement is the actuality by which they move other bodies, and this movement is the actualization of their potency. Likewise, Aristotle has at this point arrived at the con conception of movers that cause movement through the mediation of a power. In this part of the argument, he's arrived at a conception of movers that cause movement by means of a power which has its own actuality distinct from the actuality that constitutes its species or nature. Hence, he describes such a mover as something having power. Aristotle does not yet identify this actuality with the substance of the mover. Let me state clearly here that I think Aristotle sees no difficulty in the existence of eternal immaterial substances that cause movement through a power. I believe he understands himself to have arrived at this point at the sort of first mover discussed in the eighth chapter of Metaphysics 12. He recognized that these movers must have some accidental cause through which they are movers in act and not merely movers in potency. At this point in the resolution, he's arrived at the concept of substances that not only have a power to move, but are actually moving something, but such a mover is insufficient. Aristotle now takes the fourth step with the second argument. He denies that the mover ultimately responsible for eternal movement and time is a mover in act through having or being precisely a power or potency to move. The passage reads, further, not even if it will be at work, but its substance is a power, will this be enough? For there will not be an eternal movement, for a being in potency is able not to be. So there must be a principle whose substance is its action, its actuality. Now, the defense of this conclusion does suggest a concern with the very existence of this being as proposed by St. Thomas. Uh, he says, uh, uh, a being in potency is able not to be. 
uh, though that doesn't stop uh, uh, St. Albert, and I think it's just a generic claim, so I, I don't think it's absolutely necessary uh, to see that as a reference to substantial being there. Uh, uh, further, I think it clear that the actuality in question is not conceived precisely as the actuality by which a being is said to exist. The actuality here is immediately an actuality more mobile than movement. Uh, this is an actuality able to explain the aptitude of mobile beings to exist forever uh, through its own, ceasing, uh, own unceasing character. Uh, but this is the pr property of perfect actuality. That's again to say, it's because this being has actuality in a way that doesn't cease. Uh, other thing, the world is able to keep existing forever, but that kind of actuality is explicitly identified as perfect actuality in, in Book Nine. Further, this actuality cannot be something essentially relative to the world, such as categorical action. Aristotle makes clear in Physics 3.3 that categorical action, poesis, it's not the same word uh, here as, as energeia, is the actuality of movement as it is from one thing and in another. But this actuality, the actuality here that he's discussing, is substance itself. Uh, again and again, Aristotle makes very clear, it's kind of a, 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 a leitmotif through the metaphysics, substance can't, can't, uh, can't have re relation prior to it. He's constantly coming back to that point. Substance has got to be prior to relation, as if there's nothing more obvious than that. Uh, uh, so this actuality is the substance, is substance itself. Here we see the foundation in the first being for the axiom that substance and species is actuality, as well as the universal priority of actuality to potency. So I think he's, he's resolved the whole ninth book at that point uh, uh, to a being now, not just to words and, and concepts uh, and sensible beings. As I proposed earlier, this being bears the notion of what is first in each of the principal divisions of being. For it, there is no reason that activity or operation follows the actuality of its substance, uh, even in concept, I think. Uh, that, I think the way St. Thomas is describing it, there really, when he's reading the metaphysics, there really is a movement in concept from God having a first actuality and that actuality having all the actuality that we experience in second actuality. Here, I think Aristotle is not, not making that move at all. Uh, for it, there is no reason that activity or operation follows an actuality of its substance. Rather, all other beings persist in perpetual activity because the very substance of the first being is its own activity. I underscore here the fact that Aristotle habitually compares perfect actuality to movement rather than to categorical action in the manner that's customary to St. Thomas. Okay. St. Thomas obviously does it the way Aristotle does it when he's commenting, but gives St. Thomas a chance and he's going to talk about uh, two modes of action. Uh, and Aristotle never does that. After these proofs, Aristotle immediately proves the immateriality of the first substance and any other substances uh, that cause everlasting movement. I think this argument uh, clarifies the distinction in the substance of these movers from that of incorruptible bodies. Uh, uh, for a long time I was thinking, wait a minute, uh, uh, why isn't the substance of the, uh, of the heavenly bodies actual enough? Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I realize it's here that, he, that he's doing that. Uh, the middle term here, as I understand it, is the priority of their causality to all movement and time, okay? Uh, 
with his marvelous brevity, which uh, is not always so pleasing to me. Uh, with his marvelous brevity, Aristotle says, further, these substances must be without matter, for they must be eternal if anything is eternal. Note that he implies two orders of eternity. If anything, such as the heavenly bodies are eternal, uh, these substances just described must be eternal. I think it clear here that Aristotle recognizes that the causality of incorruptible bodies is mediated by movement and time. Anything the incorruptible bodies cause, they have to cause uh, by the movement that they now have, which itself is in one way or another conditioned by time. So their substances are, are not in time, uh, but their movements, at least the parts of their movements, are in some way in time. Uh, but there must be a cause whose being and causality, not just the being but also the causality, is prior to movement and time and does not depend upon movement and time in its causality. Uh, the actuality by which such causes cause cannot be imperfect actuality. So at this point in the argument, Aristotle has manifested God through two conceptions rather than one. To arrive at one name more proper to God, the good, Aristotle must say more about this first principle. This occurs through the next four chapters, according to five different orders found in thought and reality. Uh, three of these orders formally concern God's goodness. I'll propose schematically how God bears the notion of good in each of these, these orders, as the first cause, as supremely happy, and as the common good of the universe. I take it as evident that happiness signifies the good as proper to rational beings. Aristotle first names God good in the first part of Metaphysics 7. As is well known, he proposes that God causes as the good and as an end here because he causes as an unmoved mover. Yet this arises from the denial that his activity belongs to him through a power. Aristotle stated explicitly that such mediation cannot belong to what first moves. But the identity of God's substance and activity immediately follows this denial. So precisely that founds uh, the name good. Let me add two observations here. First, Aristotle proposes good as an absolute name for God. Uh, he follows this with the name that for the sake of which or end. I can't defend that. I have no time to defend that here, but uh, that's a, a movement in the thought. Uh, uh, in doing so, he prepares us to see that he is an end as an object pursued, but in no way as an agent benefited by this pursuit. Second, these three concepts, substance, actuality, and good, all identified in God, signify the foundation of each of the three modes of causality that we associate with form. Uh, uh, this constitutes a complete resolution of agent and formal causality to final causality. They exist because final causality exists. Uh, this leads to a second consideration of God's goodness insofar as taken in itself, his activity is supreme happiness. Aristotle makes clear that the actuality identified with God's substance bears the notion of pleasure and happiness, though he doesn't use the word happiness uh, there, in the second part of the seventh chapter. Uh, but each aspect identified in God, each aspect of each of the two things identified in God enters into the argument. Mind is something divine according to the activity of mind. At the same time, the object of mind, simply speaking, is substance. So Aristotle says, 
Now, mind understands itself according to its share in the intelligible, for it becomes intelligible in reaching the intelligible and understanding, so that understanding and the understood are the same. For what is receptive of thought and substance is mind, but when existing in act. Uh, Aristotle proposes God's possession of an eternal act of contemplating his substance as something wonderful, but he says that more wonderful than that is the fact that God is this eternal act of contemplation. Yeah. So I, I, uh, and he says that merely from the fact that he had already said that God was his energeia. Uh, so, so as if he's already shown that he is that actuality. The third and most important consideration of God's goodness occurs in Metaphysics 12.10. Here Aristotle recognizes God as the common good of the universe. In order to do so, he distinguishes two senses in which the world has a common good. Quote, one must investigate also in which way the nature of the whole has the good and the best, whether as something separated and itself by itself, or the order, or both ways, as an army. For its well-being is both in the army and in the general, and more in the latter, for he does not exist through that order, but it exists through him. Clearly, Aristotle recognizes that the world has both an intrinsic and an extrinsic common good here, and resolves the intrinsic common good to the extrinsic. Let me make some brief remarks about how Aristotle describes God as an extrinsic common good, and then how he describes the order of the world to God. The description of God conf uh, conf conforms to two notes that constitute one of the two senses of substance proposed in Metaphysics 5a. There Aristotle said, clearly substance is said in two ways. The last subject, which is no longer said of another, and that which is this thing and separate. Uh, I think uh, uh, with, with the two arguments I mentioned in 12.6, he's actually got rid of subjectivity in God because he doesn't have potency, there's no subjectivity in God, but he has the two other sense of substance. Uh, that which is this thing, hoc aliquid, it's clearer in Latin than in Greek, to my ears at least, and, and separate. Uh, this description of God as something separated and itself according to itself agrees with these two notes. Uh, recall that the separation is the principal aspect of the Platonic theory of ideas that he has approved of. But Aristotle also claims that the notion of common good belongs to God as he is goodness subsisting independently of the world. This relies on each of the two understandings of the goodness of God. He must have what is best on his own as subsisting wisdom and happiness. According to this goodness, Aristotle describes him as something separated, existing by itself. Yet he must have some influence over us to be good for us. Uh, this follows the primal causality belonging to the good, insofar as activity is not mediated by any power. Uh, if, if the first being, parent possible, uh, had an activity mediated by power, he couldn't do any good for anything. Uh -uh. Now, Aristotle conceives this causality as operating in us through our nature. Uh, he proposes this nature as ordering us to God and to one another and gives the household as an illustration of this order. Uh, it's kind of a long quote, uh, hard to separate. All things are jointly ordered somehow to one, but not likewise. Even things that swim and fly and plants. It's <laughs> a great collection of things. Uh, and it's not as though one thing is not related to another at all, but each is related in some way. For all things are jointly ordered to one, 
but as in a house for the freeman but as in a house for the freeman it is least possible to do whatever chances but for him all or most things are ordered uh, while for slaves and beasts there's little that is related to the common but most is whatever chances for their nature is a principle of uh, uh, for their nature is a principle of each thing I mean, for example, for all it's necessary to arrive at dissolution, and there are other things thus, in which all share for the whole. That's the critical claim there. All things are jointly ordered somehow to one, but not likewise, uh, for their nature is such a principle of each thing. I'll comment briefly on three aspects of the statement. The image of the household, the order to one, and the role of nature here. Description of the world as a household clearly implies an order in which the members come together in the good through activity. Aristotle draws attention to differences in what the members contribute. In this sense, every, even members belonging to distinct species contribute to the good of others, and thus to the whole. I suspect we should also have the generative purpose of the household in mind. Uh, so a species shares distinctly in a common good insofar as it attains some measure of incorruptibility and eternity through reproduction. In both ways, we see the common good of order as arising from the activity of the members pursuing their own proper share in that good. The order of the world to one extrinsic good is described by the verb suntaso, co-ordered or jointly ordered. This formula implies that the order must be prior, uh, that is, they're jointly ordered to one. Uh, this formula implies that this order must be prior to the order the various parts of the world have to one another. Uh, through each having an order to the extrinsic good, they have an order to one another. This is confirmed by the image of the army as well as that of the household. Obedience to one's immediate commander in the army follows obedience to the general. Uh, the order of beasts to various slaves that care for them and that of slaves to one another to various family members follows the order of each member uh, excuse me, follows the order of beasts and slaves to the householder and is good. So the order of each member of the universe to another member follows its participation in the goodness of the first good, insofar as that is something separate, while the intrinsic common good arises through the activity that flows from this participation. For Aristotle, nature, even more perfectly than the name species, names the principle of this participation intrinsic to us. I think that in itself is a development going on uh, uh, and completing in the beginning of the 12th book. <clears throat> uh, substance as it follows the species of each thing bears the notion of nature as a principle of operation and activity. Substance, activity, and goodness or perfection arise in order from nature. Nature is naming substance is the first participation in the extrinsic good of the world, while activity is a, is a second participation in that good. Finally, through this activity, the world's parts share more or less in the good as a third and final participation in the separated good that is good by itself. Now, this activity belonging to the things that participate in the good is perfect or imperfect insofar as the act, it is the activity of matter or the activity of species as such, ultimately mind. Uh, imperfect activity terminates in some species, often substantial, as a good outside it, uh, in the bodily way. That's just the nature of bodies, outsideness, if you will.
Still, this activity shares in the perfect activity of the first good insofar as it's, it serves an incorruptible cycle of generation and corruption. In the first good, activity has no end precisely because the good is fully possessed in this activity. Uh, perfect activity as it belongs properly to substance as species and mind involves some share in the imminent activity that defines the good, the first good. Even the awareness of the lack of such a good involves some share in the happiness that constitutes God's substance. In these last remarks, I hope that I've at least suggested that the identity of God's substance and activity in the good of subsisting contemplation provides a dynamic understanding of immaterial beings in place of the static conception offered by the Platonists. The simple reality of the, of the divine being lives insofar as it bears without distinction the three notions of substance, activity, and goodness. All other beings, therefore, receive and share in these according to participations more or less distinct from one another. This is most clear in the order of these participations. Uh, that's at the heart of Aristotle, uh, uh, the order first act to second act and the arrival of, of, to goodness in a, su a sufficient second actuality. Um, so finally, I'll just close here. Uh, activity that belongs to mind, I'm gonna talk about it in a moment. Uh, I have to I'll just throw a word out here. I think here we also see uh, uh, the real foundation of, I think Boethius is the first person to, to explicitly state everything comes back to his principle. Uh, but I think here we see really uh, 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 that order of things, seeing a return to the principle because of the, the, that identity in God. Uh, so finally, when we come to activity of mind, the activity that belongs to mind in such a way that it terminates in substance, that's intellectual activity, shares in the goodness of happiness, according to innumerable measures, at the very least in its awareness that it lacks happiness. Uh, at its height, however, such activity possesses not only a likeness to the activity of God, according to its distinction from other activities, it also terminates in the divine activity as identical with its substance and goodness, insofar as the finite concept, concepts of secondary intellects allows. Uh, the contemplation, this contemplation is the very work of these chapters of Metaphysics 12. Uh, yet, this constitutes the happiness of the universe for Aristotle. Uh, so Aristotle proposes that even cities can set themselves apart from other, other cities for the sake of contemplation rather than domination or even prudence and justice. If this were not possible, quote, God in his leisure and the whole universe for whom there are no exterior actions apart from the ones proper to them would hardly be well. So, Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Thomistic Studies to receive regular updates and news. 
For more information about the center, please visit us online at stom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.